Look, I don't know what's going on, but I sure as hell know that it ain't no prison break. It ain't no kind of chemical that I ever heard about can make a dead man walk. This is something that nobody has ever heard about and nobody's ever seen before. To this grunting, moaning, groaning, excessive, roaring, and stalling The shapes of shadows calling My humanity is stalling But I have no immunity, what the fuck is this gonna do to me? Ah. But what the fuck is swallowing me up? Detox, mutate, deoxy, too late to purge the proxy Gushum go text to walk on my sloppy But now no one can stop me Diabolical, not kin to Diablo Red retina predator Conceived when I see for my soul resides in a lake of fire Engulfed in pain and torment The destruction hungered my being I foresee a kingdom of burning buildings toppling on themselves The unliving and unforgiving Continue poisoning the well It's Ghost Fang, you rang? I have trouble controlling these hands Boots gone berserk, another anatomy reworked Ha 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 Smoky streets, muddy beats, bloody feet Disgustingly lovely Disgustingly lovely The American dream turn like Maris reality. Watching seeds feasting upon the flesh of their own family and unholy tragedies. Mass behind the pictures of the divine comedy. The end of days draw near for the beloved children of mankind. An undead alliance bringing famine and plagues. Till the morning saw strain, straining the patience of a terrible vengeance. Laying inside of restless graves, waiting for the right moment to spread this infectious rain of terror. Has been seven, yet there's no stopping this frenetic fever burning these streets, leaving the human race obsolete. Searching for hope inside of dreams and dead memories The exact same way I felt when the disease got transferred to me The pain of having lost everything in an insatiable rage Led me to find a purpose behind this change An abnormal decay slowly rotting away Causing apocalyptic days of hell on earth Soon the world will be ignited in the eternal flame Of judgment's gazing eyes with nowhere to hide Condemned to a life by cannibalism or massive radical suicide Reno reporting live from Homestead Where tragedy befell an immigrant family What's up, my universal people? What you just heard was one of my favorite rap groups called Abstract Distortion here from Florida. Two of my homies, plus the unborn child and boy to one. They dropped this album in 2011. Uh, the track you just heard was called Morning Star Strain featuring Killtoy 718. Uh, they are an awesome group. You can find their EP on Bandcamp. If you go to Bandcamp and you look up abstract, not with the letter C, with the letter K. So spell it with a K and not with a C, essentially. Abstract, distortion, 
The EP is called Awakening the Dead. It's seven tracks of pure madness. It's so sick, you wouldn't even understand it. 50 years from now, people are going to be like, God damn, this is dope. But anyway, yeah, I'm trying to give a shout out to my homies. Um, I'm going to start to do this every once in a while before I start my shows. Um, give artists their shine. Some of them are going to be independent, friends that I know. And some are just going to be some of my favorite bands, mainstream, not mainstream, metal, all types of stuff. Um, so I want to start it off by that before I bring my my two guests on. Um, also want to talk about, you know, a couple of projects. Um, one is uh, my, my Paranormality, which is another podcast I started. Um, I dropped an episode uh, December 25th. You can find that at the normal spots, YouTube, you know, all the other spots if you're subscribed. If you're not subscribed, I'm on BitChute. I'm on Spotify. Uh, I have an RSS feed. I'm on Apple Apple Podcast, uh, YouTube, obviously. Um, so you can check it out. I'm going to drop another one December 25th. That's the goal. It's you know has to do with like you know paranormal stuff during Christmas. Um, the hat that I'm wearing, this dope hat that you see that I'm wearing, and also this shirt. You can cop it at my store. Go to Etsy. You still got time. Hopefully, by the time I drop this episode. You still have time to to shop and get it before Christmas if you want to do it, you know, send, you know, hook it up as a gift to someone or hook, hook whatever products that I have as a gift. I have hats, I have shirts, I have sneakers. I mean, wine tumblers, windbreakers. I mean, I have a lot of different products, uh, a lot of different graphics all done by me. Um, if you head to Etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Arise Creations 73. That's Arise Creations, the number seven and the number three all together. Uh, you head there, pick up all the products. Shipping is quick. Great products. Anyway, also, if you want to support, there's another way you can support. You could do it that way by ordering products from the store, or you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash universal73. That's universal, the number seven and the number three all together. Um, that's the support. You can drop anything from like $5 to whatever you can do it daily weekly monthly yearly however you want to do it but it's to help support this content creator because you know i do this for y'all i mean i primarily do it for me for fun but some of y'all seem to like it also uh like subscribe more importantly subscribe share with people that you think would subscribe and pass it around um this is the universal dialect show i've been doing this for about a year and a half um and so just want to let y'all know some things, right? So let's get into this episode with these two great individuals and enjoy it, my peeps. What's up, everybody? This is the Universal Dialect Show. I'm your host, Chris Cypher73 Cabrera. Uh, this is show number 36, and I have an awesome show today. Uh, first, let me introduce my two guests. Uh, first is Ryder Lee, who hosts the podcast Raised by Giants. You see that on YouTube and other platforms like Rockfin. Please subscribe. Spotify, Odyssey, Spreaker, and many more. He was also featured on show number 23. Um, I also like to welcome Jay Widener. 
Uh, he's a writer, director, and author uh, with projects like The Last Avatar, Kubrick's Odyssey, and the second part to that, Beyond the Infinite. Uh, both of them came out with an awesome documentary. I've watched it four times already. Had to watch it two extra times to get all the notes that I needed for this for this interview. Um, it's called JF, JFKX, Solving the Crime of the Century. And you can find that on Amazon Prime. Is, is it on any other platforms? Uh, it's on a lot of platforms. It's going up on uh, Vimeo International. So all uh, that'll be up in the next day or two. I'll have links and I'll probably do another show maybe with Ryder later on when it finally gets up. But we're finally <laughs> going to get uh, Vimeo and we're going to get international viewing. So all you people out there who have been complaining that you can't see it, you're now going to be able to see it. Awesome. You, you, do you want to add anything, Ryder? Uh, yeah, just, uh, man, whenever this documentary came out, the, the amount of myths and disinformation that, that followed the documentary coming out is unbelievable. And it's going to be really great for people to see it internationally because that's been a big thing for our international friends, uh, that it's not available in their country. So right now it's only available if you're in the United States on Amazon, but uh, soon uh, we will be doing shows and letting people know that are outside of the United States where they can watch the film. All right. So I'll say it now and I'll repeat it towards the end. It's on Amazon Prime, literally for less than a cup of coffee. You can rent it or you can buy it. Um, there's a lot to talk about. And uh, my approach is going to be a little bit different in this interview, obviously, because I want to pique people's interest enough to go watch the documentary and not give too much away. Because, you know, people always try to find excuses to not watch something or listen to something because you give too much away. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen something like that before. So I'm going to uh, I have this set up a different way. So let's begin by talking about the original assassination of JFK, what the American people were told first before we get into, you know, the nitty gritty of the other stuff. So if you any one of you can come in and just explain the original story that the American people were told. Well, there's two stories, two narratives that were uh, created in the early 1960s after the assassination. The first one was created by the Warren Commission in the government, which claimed that Lee Harvey Oswald um, was this incredible marksman and that he shot three times from the book depository in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, striking the president on the first shot and the third shot. And um, the third shot went through uh, uh, um, uh, hit Kennedy in the back of the head, somehow ricocheted off, hit Governor John Connolly in the front seat in the back, and um, then ricocheted him and hit his wrist and created a couple of wounds there. And uh, the conspiracy theorists are the second narrative, and they say that there was a guy on the grassy knoll about 40 feet 13 yards to the right of President Kennedy on Elm Street in Dallas, and that behind the um, uh, the uh, fence there, a guy with a high-powered weapon shot Kennedy uh, twice, once in the neck, uh, through the windshield, and then once in the side of the head. Um, we um, take a third position, I guess kind of like a 
you know, an enlightened person would. You take a little bit of both sides and try to find a mill. We take a third position that does not agree with either side, but actually does agree with both sides in a certain kind of way. And we say that something completely different happened that day in uh, Dallas. And the reason that we say that is because we're the ones who came up with the brilliant idea of showing the audience a 4K enhanced version of the Zabruder film, the famous film shot by Abraham Zabruder that day, eight millimeter film that is used as a chief um, evidence for the uh, both sides use it. The conspiracy people use it. The government people use it. Both sides use the film, but they've always had a very um, obscure, out of focus, grainy version of the film because it first off, it's eight millimeter, which means it's about this big each frame. So it's very small. But secondly, no one ever took the time to actually get an enhanced version like we did. We ran it through the software that uh, people run old movies through nowadays to get that to look like it was shot yesterday in 4K, 24 frames a second, looks smooth, it looks good. And so once that was put through there, we can actually, it's like looking through a paint, paint of glass, we can see everything that was going on in the Zabruder film. And what we see is a complete variance to what the witnesses saw, uh, what everyone saw, and um, and we can see it clearly. So if John Connolly claims that he saw brain matter all over the trunk of the car, we can watch the Zapruder film in 4K, high def, and we can see that, in fact, there is no brain matter on the back of the car at all. And we can also see, of course, that nobody in the audience around the assassination reacts to high-powered rifles going off. If you've ever been around a high-powered rifle, you know what I'm talking about. It is no fun. Believe me, they're loud. They are, they, the bullets cut through the air. Um, it's very scary. If you ever had a bullet come by your ear, uh, traveling at six, 700 miles an hour, and um, and yet nobody reacts, not Zabruder, the guy doing the filming. Well, presumably the, the guns are coming right from behind his head. He doesn't react. The people in the car don't react. The people behind the car in the park don't react. No one reacts to high-powered rifles going off anywhere. And so we have to ask ourselves, what the heck is going on? And we answer that question. <laughs> All right. Ryder, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just uh, we basically take you through the entire what the official story is in the first act of the documentary. And some people, you know, they're, they're, they complain about that, but we're not there to explain all the conspiracy theories of what people think happened. We're there to examine the official story and then give what we believe happened. Right. And that's another thing too is that people are like oh well why didn't you put in this why didn't you do that and like well do you want that movie to be four hours long no you don't like this wasn't made for the necessarily the conspiracy community this was made for an everyday person to sit down and watch that isn't really familiar with the JFK assassination to give them a solid background. And we go through a lot of that in the first act of the movie. And then in the second act, it, it, we, we give uh, our belief of exactly what happened in the film. And we have so many things in there. We have a whole section on the mob, which is very interesting that I personally wasn't aware of, of how hard uh, JFK and how, um, 
viciously they were going after organized crime and uh, JFK's brother RFK. It's an amazing section in the movie, which very few people, very few JFK researchers even look at uh, RFK in the whole thing. They just focus on JFK really the whole time. But his brother RFK was even more charismatic than JFK was. So that's also an important factor. So, and we have the highest quality version of the Zabruder film ever made. And Jay is right. When Once you see what we present in the movie, there is no denying it. There's no denying what's going on. And that's the, that's the biggest part of the movie that's gotten everyone so far. Whenever they look at the cleared up version of the Zabruder film, the, the 4k enhanced version, they look at JFK autopsies photos and they realize that nothing is presented the way that it was even shot in the Zabruder film. So something is happening. And we start the entire movie off with like, why haven't we released the JFK files? You know, why hasn't the government after all these years not released the JFK files? And I believe what we present in the movie is the reason that the JFK files have never been released and are never going to be released. Yeah, awesome, you know, dude. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. But with the autopsy, I think we're the first film to actually show that the autopsy is at odds with the Zabruder film. In Zabruder film, whatever you want to say is actually going on, there's clearly the government and the conspiracy theorists agree that something happens on the right side of JFK's head and, you know, causes him to move this way and all of that. Yet when we uh, look at the autopsy film, uh, video, uh, photographs which are shown in the film there is completely pristine this whole side of the head is completely unmarked by anything the only wound is right here in the back of the head um, and that's impossible because if the if the government story is right Oswald shot here and I guess it, it exited here is what they're saying but either way there would be a wound there but the autopsy shows no wound so either there is something wrong with the autopsy pictures or there's something wrong with the Zabruder film or there's something wrong with both. We say there's something wrong with both. And we use evidence to show that mostly the unknown murder of, of Dallas police officer uh, J.D. Tippett, uh, who was also killed by Lee Harvey Oswald that day, even though. 99.99% of the people who have looked at the JFK assassination have never associated the idea that Oswald actually killed two people that day, um, uh, J.D. Tippett, Officer J.D. Tippett, and President John F. Kennedy, according to the, uh, uh, the authorities. And then we look at J.D. Tippett, and we see that J.D. Tippett is nearly the same age as Kennedy. He has the same frame and build as Kennedy. He has the same hairline as Kennedy. And then we discover that his nickname on the Dallas police force was JFK because he was a dead ringer for Kennedy. So Oswald did the most amazing thing of all. He never killed anyone at all, as far as we know. And then on November 22nd, 1963, he happened to shoot two people uh, within an hour of each other who looked almost exactly alike. Awesome. So I, this should have been the first question I asked, but this documentary doesn't exist if either of you have any sort of interest in it, knowing that there's so many books, movies, other documentaries and and writer. I, I've known you for, you know, for a while, listening to you on Raised by Giants, primarily talking about aliens and alien cults. 
you, Jay, I, I've known you more talking about spirituality and things of those natures. What sparked your interest in even to get into this subject matter in the first place? Well, a lot of people know that I'm the guy that, you know, kind of uncovered the fact that Stanley Kubrick did the moon landing video uh, films. Not saying they didn't go to the moon. I don't know if they went to the moon or not. <laughs> I'm just saying that what we saw was fake and done by Stanley Kubrick. And so, you know, I have a pedigree for being able to look at film and actually see what's actually going on in the film as opposed to the magicians and what they want you to see uh, because of my background in film. And so I first saw an enhanced version of this Bruder film about 10, 11 years ago. Somebody in Oliver Stone's camp accidentally put out uh, Oliver Stone's enhanced version that he did for the movie JFK um, out on the Internet, on YouTube for, I don't know, maybe six weeks it was up and then it was taken down. And I got to see it and I watched it over and over and over. And I saw it. there it was everything that you know, we describe in this film. I saw in this film. And then it was mysteriously taken away right after I began making comments on the film about what I was seeing. After about 10 or 15 comments on the film on YouTube, boom, it was gone. And then I was kind of left hanging. And then later, writer brought up the whole thing with me in an interview. And then I realized it was the 60th anniversary and that there wasn't any films coming out about Kennedy's assassination at the time and that this would really hit the mark at the right time. And I view it not so much as a conspiracy film because I don't believe that. I view it as a historical correction. We are correcting the historical record and we're doing it in a way that I believe evokes hope uh, for the viewer. In other words, it isn't all lost. It isn't a CIA plot, even though the CIA was involved. Uh, it isn't a mob plot, even though the mob was involved. It was something more deep than that, something that, once you consider it, is really a commentary on our entire political culture. And I think that's why it's gotten such pushback from the deep state. Uh, they've really come at us full both barrels uh, blazing, and um, I'm shocked. Actually, I am shocked. I put out a lot of stuff going after these guys, but I've never seen them come after us with the amount of money and resources that they have come at us in the last five months. Right. Did they released something, didn't they, right after you guys released yours or right before, right? Right, right after. after. Yeah, go ahead, Ryder. Yeah, National Geographic did a whole series. Hulu did a series. Paramount Plus did a series. Holy shit! Uh, on all of this stuff, and it was almost identical. Like, because I made everything in the movie. I I edited it all. I put all the footage in it. I made the trailers, and I'm like watching the trailers on Hulu. I'm like, this is almost identical to the trailer that I made four months ago. You know, and uh, it's been like that for uh a while now and i think now that maybe we got over this hump and it's interesting too like why did they not do this for the 50th anniversary yeah. right there was not any of this stuff surrounding the 50th anniversary you would think that the 50th anniversary would be right. bigger than the 60th anniversary it doesn't make any sense correct right and they're coming out and refuting basically everything that we talk about in our documentary you know, and they're using the three gunshots in the trailer and, you know, doing all that. And I'm like, holy crap, this is a, uh, this is ridiculous. The way that they're, they're coming after this 
film and our film because I believe that what we put in there, we we have to be right. And it has to be spot on for them to roll out this uh, continuous disinformation and misinformation campaign, uh, reinforcing the old narrative as they do. I mean, one of them were like, uh, one of the documentary series was like, oh, we got all the witnesses from the JFK assassination 60 years ago. Like, you're telling me that these people remember exactly what happened 60 years ago? People can't remember what happened freaking two weeks ago, let alone what happened 60 years ago. It's impossible, right? That's why witness testimony never works. You can't win a court case with just witness testimony. You have to have some sort of physical evidence to, to back up your claim. And then almost I, right after our film came out, go. Paul Landis came out and said that he was the one that planted the magic bullet in the stretcher at, uh, at Bethesda Hospital on JFK stretcher. Well, he found it on the on the seat of the limousine, yep. unblemished, and then it took evidence that had fingerprints on it, presumably of the person who loaded that bullet into the gun. Um, and everything and took that and then messed with the evidence in a capital crime and nobody is calling this guy out on it he should be in jail this is outrageous and the fact that this bullet is sitting on the limousine to me this proves that we're right this is what happened they just stuck it on the limousine said okay someone will find it they'll think what it is what it is and and they got their case and he messed with them, and he put it on the wrong stretcher, by the way. He put it on uh, Connolly's stretcher, I believe. So <clears throat> he didn't even get the right stretcher. <clears throat> anyway, the whole uh, evidence, the whole chain of evidence that's come out since our film has come out, to me, only bolsters the fact that we must be barking up the right tree because they ignore you for the most part. But when they act the way they're acting right now, then we've like opened up a wound and threw salt water right in it because they are overreacting. Uh, uh, incredible. Right. The, the that whole Paul Vandas thing too, just completely disproves the entire magic bullet theory as well. Like, and that's what they ran off of, right? One, they ran off of the Zabruder film and we proved without a shadow of the doubt that the Zabruder film has been altered. That's what they use as the timeline to figure out what happened in the assassination. The people are bigger in the uh, foreground. I mean, in the background than they are in the foreground, which makes no sense. There's two splices in the Zabruder film, four frames missing in the Zabruder film. That's been altered. So that means that their timeline's wrong and then paul landis the secret service agent coming out and saying that he's the one that planted the magic bullet took it out of the limousine put it in the stretcher at the hospital that completely ruins the entire magic bullet theory the entire narrative has yep. been destroyed first the film destroyed the entire narrative and then their uh, uh blatant attempt to act as a cover-up also worked against them and created even more doubt about the entire thing. So now the magic bullet theory has collapsed. The Zapruder uh, uh, film has collapsed and the autopsy has collapsed. And then we, and, and nobody in any film anywhere, there, there is a book that does bring this up, but there are no films or documentaries or anything that brings up the splices that are in the Zapruder film. 
and how those splices got there, why Time Life, who was in control of that film, did not tell the Warren Commission that there were splices in the film. Therefore, the Warren Commission using the film as a timing device to figure out exactly when and what happened at the that day in, in, in Dealey Plaza is wrong. And Time Life knew it was wrong the whole time and never told anybody. We want to know who the technician is that caused the splices to happen. Where did the film go that got removed? When did it happen? And why didn't Time Life tell anyone that there was a uh, two splices put into the Zapruder film sometime after Abraham Zapruder shot the film? Bang. All right. <laughs> and then not only that, their, uh, JFK's brain uh, tissue was stolen from the National Archives as well. Just disappeared. Just yeah. gone. No one knows how it left. No one in, 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 can figure it out. Just gone. Just disappeared. Poof. Yeah, you know, and lots of little things that no one talks about. They did a paraffin test on Oswald the day he was arrested, the day of the assassination, which means they rub paraffin wax all over your face and your arms and everything to find out if you've got a gunpowder residual on you. And they did that, and they discovered that there was absolutely no gunpowder on his face, on his neck, on his shoulder. There was some or something on his arm, but uh, the books also carry that exact uh, those exact nitrates, and he was working in the book depository. So he could have picked that up from the books that he was working with. So the um, Dallas police knew the day of the assassination that Lee Harvey Oswald had never fired a rifle that day, but they told no one. Mm. And then so why didn't they do the autopsy right then and there in Dallas? Right. They they whisked away JFK's body so freaking fast, and the coroner had all the right in the world to do the autopsy there. That's FBI right. didn't want it done there for a reason. Right? They took it somewhere else where people that had no idea what they were doing and never performed an autopsy in their life <laughs> ran the autopsy. Right, right, you know? right. So the documentary, um, when I first saw it, uh, it's beautifully shot. Uh, whoever was the narrator did a great job. I don't know who that was. And uh, <laughs> mm. no, but it, it flowed like straight through. And um, so the next questions are going to be sort of like in the order of appearance of like how you introduce each person and their role. But there was one individual when you opened up the, the documentary and it was when uh, Geraldo, I guess, was first showing the Zabruder film. There's an individual with a mustache and a beard. And he, he essentially is talking about like the conspiracy. Who who was that person? Do you know? Uh, yeah, it was a, a Rob. Robert Good, I think his name was. Uh, he was a photographic analyst, and he um, was brought in to examine the Bruder film, uh, I believe, for the Warren Commission, I think. But either way, he, of course, saw the Zabruder film in more pristine version, probably the actual film. And he, of course, being a photographic analyst, he saw what I saw and went, whoa, you know, he didn't see the, the thing on his face, but he saw everything else that didn't make any sense. And he's probably the guy that smuggled out the um, the copy that Geraldo played that night. Oh, OK. I was wondering. Yeah, because he did. I know right. you're still alive, dude. I don't want you to get mad at me. <laughs> but, you know, it's just my own suspicion, you know. <laughs> Okay, so so JFK essentially is like the main topic, right? Of of the documentary, um, a lot of people don't know about his past, 
and things leading up to this event that happened. Can you guys talk a little bit about the things he was doing that was getting him negative attention and who who was keeping eyes on him? Well, the CIA had a really big bone to pick with JFK. You know, that famous statement that we have in our documentary talking about, you know, I want to uh, completely shred the CIA and throw it into the winds. Uh, we're very mad at him. The the right wing. See, that's another thing that people don't realize. Is that JFK was a Democrat. They th- For some reason, people nowadays think that JFK was, uh, was a Republican because even the Republicans nowadays back up jfk and think that he was like the best president uh in the world but he was a democrat and the republicans didn't like him they uh you know he was trying to desegregate the south he was trying to do all this stuff that was uh essentially pissing off uh the right and also with the vietnam war he refused to send troops into uh vietnam in the also into cuba so it was like he, he had a lot of en- enemies and also with the mob as well as, uh, and Jake can uh, speak to this. Uh, his dad, Joe Kennedy, was involved with the mob. That's how he made a lot of his money uh, smuggling booze from Canada into the United States during Prohibition. So he had all this ties with the mob. And we talk about this uh, a lot in the documentary. Basically, the mob threw the election in JFK's favor. They did. So Kennedy came in at a time when the United States had, so in the 1920s, the United States, all the way up until about 1925, we had this fairly open immigration policy that got closed down in 1925 and reopened again in 1965. But all the way up until the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, we had a really wide open immigration policy. And a lot of people from Eastern Europe poured in to the United States. And these people, <clears throat> well, they looked at the United States like it was um, people would leave their keys in their car. They'd leave their doors unlocked. Um, they, you know, they, they weren't afraid to have their children play alone in the parks and everything. And these people who were very poor couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. And they began to create mobs, um, organized crime. And, um, in Chicago, Philadelphia, Kansas City, all these places back east where these immigrants came from. And these immigrants from you know, Italy and Eastern Europe began uh, uh, creating this. There was always organized crime. I don't want to say there wasn't, but this was organized crime that was violent, very violent. And um, uh, the Kennedy brothers, because their dad was part of that milieu, saw this and you know, in light of Eisenhower's uh, State of the Union address as he left office, talking about the military-industrial complex, the Kennedy brothers were the first, to me, they were the first people to realize that there was an unholy alliance between the military-industrial complex, the intelligence agencies, beginning with the CIA, and the mob. And the three were uniting into a force. And Kennedy's were you know, dead set to break that up. And they tried to break it up. And instead, they got broken up. And, and what about RFK? What What's his, uh, like, his history? I know he's... Huh? Okay, so RFK and Bobby, Bobby and John were best friends, of course, about brothers. And when John got elected, he and Bobby sought to find an attorney general. 
right. a suitable attorney general. And since Bobby was a lawyer, John had him at the meetings and they were uh, interviewing people and find, trying to find the right guy. And Joe Kennedy walked into the room, the dad, the patriarch, and he said, I don't understand why you're looking for an attorney general. And John said, what do you mean? He says, you got one right here, right next to you, your brother. And John goes, well, that's, I can't do that. It'll look terrible. You know, I appointed my brother and he said, I don't care. You want somebody you can trust in there. And um, I believe it was Joe Kennedy that was pushing Bobby to go after the mob. I think that there had been um, backstabbings and things going on uh, as the mob is prone to do. And I believe, you know, Meyer Lansky had backstabbed Kennedy in a, in a booze run and stole a whole bunch of booze from John and, or Joe and Joe was mad at the mob and he used them to get John elected and then was going to double cross him with uh, Bobby going after the mob, which he did. And Bobby uncovered more of the mob's activities than anybody before or since in American history. Uh, he deserves a spot somewhere, in a statue or something for what he did. Um, and he paid for it with his life. And, um, <clears throat> and now his son is running. And uh, so uh, that's what the way it is. They went after the mob. They went after the CIA and they went after the military industrial complex, as Ryder was saying, and uh, not realizing that this was a, a tri headed uh, of a dragon, the most powerful three headed dragon that ever lived. And uh, you cut off the head of the intelligence agencies and the mob and the uh, military is going to get you. Yeah, it chop off the head of the military, the CIA and the mob's going to get you. It chop off the head of the CIA, the military and the mob will get you. So you can't win. And the Kennedy brothers didn't realize this. A little, little bit of naivete in there, I bet. And uh, they thought they could win. And uh, John realized uh, when the mob put the hit out on him, as we show in the movie, in October 1963, um, he knew then that his days were numbered. He either had to do something or eventually they were going to knock him off. They had a hit out on him, probably for what his brother was doing, and he had to make a decision. Anything to add, Ryder? I agree with everything that Jay just said and, you know, going through all of the uh, the footage and researching into RFK was phenomenal because almost everything that is being talked about within the community to this very day, RFK was talking about 60 years ago, more than 60 years ago. You know, he's talking about how he's uncovered this gigantic plot of governmental organized crime that these uh, crime families have uh, eight to 12 members <laughs> in their crime family. And like, it, it was unbelievable. I was really shocked and I, and it really gave me a, uh, a newfound, um, not acceptance, but a, like a, a newfound appreciation for the Kennedys and the, uh, the Kennedy brothers, because I 100% believe that they saw the direction that the United States was going and in turn the world was going and they were trying to put a stop to it. And like we point out and what Jay just pointed out that we talk about in our movie is that they were the first people to go after organized crime and they were also the last people to go after organized crime. And that, you know, makes a, a, a huge statement. And what happened to organized crime and the mob after the Kennedy assassination is a whole other story. They just went and became large corporations. 
They just went 100% legit. They no longer are out there, uh, uh, you know, uh, breaking people's bones. And I mean, there is some, you know, like the cartels and stuff like that still do that, but those are the low level. Those are the scum to these corporations, right? And the mob just went straight corporate, you know, they started working in their, uh, their mail departments to save millions of dollars by stamping things differently, you know, and saving yeah, money like, that uh, way. It's like the movie Casino uh, by Martin Scorsese. I mean, you know, it starts out that they're all mobsters and I forget the guy's name, the little short guy. He's, you know, he's stabbing people and killing people. And then by the end of the movie, Robert De Niro's not running a casino, mobster casino anymore. He's running a business and they have to get rid of all those mobsters. And that's the whole end of the movie is them getting rid of the bad guys who are doing all the violence and becoming a straight ahead corporation. And um, uh, it really is a story of America. Godfather 2, of course, is the same story about how the Corleone family tried to go legit by going into Vegas and, you know, buying casinos and becoming legitimate business people instead of violent mobsters. And that's the story of America after the Kennedy assassination is the corporatization of the mob. And, um, and this is why we have a culture going all the way back into the 1920s where we worship mobsters. We always have worshiped mobsters in this country. Go back and look at James Cagney movies from the 1930s. I mean, um, they're heroes. The mobsters were always heroes. Bonnie and Clyde in the 1960s today, the, 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 you know, the, 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 um, the, the gangbangers. So gang gangsters have always been, uh, uh, considered great Americans and, um, and so it comes as no surprise that, you know, when you go up against them, they're going to shoot your ass. And they right. Wu-Tang Clan, uh, a rap group, um, they're known for like, you know, the Asian kung fu flicks. But for a time when they when they started to get notoriety, they started to take on these uh, gangster personas. So, I mean, it, gangsters are looked up to even to today, you know. Uh, it's true. And, you know, um, I always think of, I like to, I'm a big movie fan and I, I'm a, I love the history of movies. And if you go back to the 1930s, you can see the Hollywood's making two kinds of movies. One was Westerns and the other were gangster movies. And the gangster movies were all in these enclosed cities with violence everywhere and scary everywhere, shadowy and dangerous. And then the Westerns were always wide open. You know, everything was open, wide open. And it was like this, you know, the, the people going forth and liberating everything. And so there was this Hollywood was this delicious contrast of, of evil city, urban gangster. And then, which were really gangsters too. the Cowboys going out in the plains and killing the Indians was really just another form of gangsterism, of course. So you can see that America has always been built on gangsters <laughs> long before anybody from Europe ever arrived here. Um, I'm going to say something's kind of off topic and I apologize, but you can't, both of you reminded me of this, something that I I had heard and maybe you can confirm this or deny it. But I know around this time, you know, you had JFK assassination, RFK, you had Malcolm X and you also had Martin Luther King around that same time. And I heard that RFK, uh, JFK and RFK were going to team up somewhat with like a Malcolm X, try to get Malcolm X and and Martin Luther, because Martin Luther and Malcolm X did not really like each other. They didn't see eye to eye. But I heard that they were going to try to get them together and try to, like, you know, work together for the communities, specifically, like, uh, 
you know, racial inequality to to attack that. Is that did you guys come across that right. in your research? Yeah, what happened is is that Malcolm he went to uh, Mecca, and right uh, right before he died, like about eight months before he died, he went to Mecca and he looked out and he saw that there were you know white people, Arab people, Asian people, and and he realized that you know he thought that been taught by the uh, uh, Islamic nation that it was a more of a black thing. And he was like kind of blown away and he realized, oh no, this is not that. This is multiracial. I've been wrong about my what I've been saying. And he came back to the nation of Islam and preached this and horrified him. They were horrified. He was like, well, no, 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 you're wrong. You know, there, I saw people with blonde hair there. And they're like, what? You know, because and, 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 they hadn't gone to Mecca. And so there was a shift all of a sudden at the same time. And he was making, he was talking to Malcolm, uh, to Martin Luther King. He was sending messages through a couriers to Martin Luther King. You know, maybe we should talk. You know, there's really not that much difference between us and, and everything. And, you know, we all come from the same Abrahamic God. And, and then at the same time, Bobby is like, you know, he's he's doing all this stuff in the South to liberate the stuff and making, you know, telling George Wallace to go eat and shit and die and all this. And and um and so there was this very dangerous confluence going on in America at the time, which I think was going on. And by the way, it's going on again right now. There are there are Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, Alex Jones, all these guys are forming an alliance. I don't know if you guys are watching, but they're forming a secret alliance right under our noses right now. And and believe me, the intelligence community knows all about it, just like they knew about this supposed alliance that may have been occurring between Malcolm X, Martin Luther King and the Kennedy brothers. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of. Um, you got to remember something uh, of all the Europeans, the Irish have always been the most oppressed. When the English would leave to go to America, they would always stop off at Ireland and pick up 500 Irish women as slaves. Um, and they would bring them to America and sell them. And so the Irish have always had this kind of uh, anti-European, uh, you know, because they're an island, not really part of Europe. This kind of anti-European, no, we're tired of you guys pushing us around kind of attitude. And the Kennedy brothers definitely had that attitude. Why did you have, do you have anything to add? Uh, not really. I'm not uh, knowledgeable at all on, on this topic to even comment. The only thing that I am knowledgeable on was that RFK was trying to um, help the poor and raise up the, the poor. He was trying to do all of these uh, get togethers and these uh, sort of like rallies and, uh, and, and protests to, uh, you know, to, to help the poor out because I mean, that's what the nation is really founded upon is if you do hard work, you, I mean, that's what people are told, right? If you, if you go, you work all this, you work a job, you do nine to five, then you have an opportunity to be somebody at the top. And they saw that the middle class was getting cut off at the knees. The poor were becoming poorer, you know, in these endless wars that we're fighting. And uh, and they saw that direction that things were going in. They were trying to make a change. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really all I got on, on that topic. But there's probably something to it. I mean, that would have caused a giant... Uh, revolution if that would have happened and of course we can't have any kind of 
real revolution in the United States that actually matters on that front. So like, well, put a little way, stop to it. Either way, by late 1968, all four were dead. Uh, right, right. So, yep. so in the, so in the documentary, the first character that I ran into that I knew nothing about, because this sprinkled throughout this documentary, there, there's people that we do know about, you know, the Lee Harvey Oswald, etc. Um, but there's some that I don't know, and I found really interesting. Can you get into who Joe uh, Vellucci was and his role? Joe Valachi was the first yeah. guy that Bob Kennedy got Joe Valachi to come forward and talk to the Congress and tell them about the secret history of the mob in America. And he came and he told them about the rituals and and all the, the hierarchies and more or less laid the whole thing out. Um, and that he was used by Bobby to show the American people that the mob even existed because you got to remember they had no idea that there they knew there was crime not organized to this extent. And when Joe Valachi got on there and started talking, the American people were blown away. Believe me, I remember my parents like could not believe this guy telling them that they organize hits and they rob people and they take the money and they give it back to other organizations and it was very shocking and it was bobby kennedy behind the whole thing did, did he live after he... Yep. he he went into custody and he lived a few more years he was a uh, you know smoked like 20 cigars oh, okay. a day because <laughs> i figured they would have take, taken him out for revealing they, all they tried yeah but kennedy they protected him yeah all right so so there's this interesting conversation a recording that you guys have on the documentary with the FBI. Um, this this individual's name, uh, James Miltier. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, James Miltier was, a uh, again, a right-wing uh, white supremacist associated with the um, CIA and military-industrial complex, just, and uh, 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 just like everybody else that we're talking about, there's this unholy alliance, and... Um, since Kennedy had pissed off all everybody in that unholy alliance, Miltier was bragging that he had heard that the Chicago mob had put a hit out on JFK, which they had, and he was telling the FBI informant, which we play the recording in the movie, that we're going to hit him from a high-rise building, and uh, uh, he's going to be in a limousine and the whole thing, and it's really quite shocking, and really you have to wonder... They had to have played that for Kennedy. They had to. The FBI is under law that if the president gets threatened like that, they have to play it. So Kennedy knew going into Dallas that there was a high chance that, you know, he had a hit out on him and makes you wonder why he had an open limousine, why there were open windows in the buildings, why the Secret Service didn't do their job very well that day and all the rest. And we kind of explained the whole reasons why in the movie. Any, anything to add, Fred? I'm sorry. Yeah, that James Miltier um, recording is unbelievable. I mean, he literally lays out exactly the cover story of what they did. I mean, he was like, yeah, they'll pick somebody up within minutes after the assassination, which was exactly what they did. He told him that he would hit him from a high-rise building, that he would take the gun up there in parts. He didn't have to take it up there all in uh, as a put-together gun. It was unbelievable. I'm like, holy crap, this is like... They they staged this whole thing based off of this FBI informant recording. And when you listen to that, you're like, wow, this is exactly what they claimed happened. 
Right. Yeah. He's FBI informing. <laughs> when, when Oswald went to work that day on Friday, November 22nd, um, he got picked up by a guy they were doing kind of multi-share writing. And uh, he had this big, long box in his hand, you know, like four, three and a half feet wide. And the guy driving the car goes, what's that? And he goes, oh, it's curtain rods. But well, why is Oswald taking curtain rods to his job, first off? Um, and, um, you know, uh, the thing is, is that you don't, it, it's clearly obvious that they were trying to say that it was a gun, right. but you can break a man liquor carcano down into three right. pieces, each piece this big. So you wouldn't just need a box this big, your lunch pail would do it, right? So you can stick everything in a lunch pail and just click it together. I've done it many times. It takes about three minutes. So the whole thing is just so set up and ridiculous to make it look like Oswald was bringing a gun to work that day. Right. But, I mean, can you hold a man liquor carcano with, you know, your right hand? And, you know, it's a heavy gun. So I don't know. Uh, well, you got to think there's windows in that book depository and the sun comes in. So while he's working, it's probably really hot. So you wanted to put curtains up, you know, just to make sure that he can cover himself while he's, while he's working. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so listen, that's I'm sorry. Good excuse for the curtains, but that's <laughs> yeah. the, that's the main thing is that, right. you know, Oswald was never arrested for assassinating the president of the United States. You know, that's the big emphasis that we put on in this movie. He was arrested for supposedly killing a police officer. And in the footage that we show that's in our documentary, uh, it doesn't even seem like he's aware that the president had even been shot. Right. You know, the, the public is what is putting this on him. The public is yelling at him. Did you kill the president? Did you kill the president? You shot the president. You know, and he's like, I don't, I don't know anything about it. I've been arrested for, uh, I've been told that I've murdered a police officer. That's what I'm here for. Right. You know? And then the public just slapped that charge on him. And then a few days later, he's being transferred to another jail. And then Jack Ruby just happens to get by all the security and all the people to shoot him point blank in the stomach while he's got a black sweater on that we can't even tell if he's actually been shot or not. Right. And a Hollywood um, microphone placed in the ceiling above the situation, even though right. nothing was supposed to happen at that point in the uh, entourage. Yet somebody put a, uh, in those days, I would say about a $3,000 mic up at the ceiling to record whatever happens below, which just happens to be exactly where Ruby shoots Oswald. What an amazing coincidence. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jay. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I want you to finish your no, thoughts. That's just one of the. Mo there's just one coincidence after another with this whole thing, as any investigator can tell you. No coincidences are allowed when you're doing an investigation. So as soon as you hit a coincidence, you have to like go beep, 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 beep. Danger, danger. Right. Because you know you just you can't you know it can't be a coincidence. It's just, right. It can be, I, I, I remember. In the 80s, I think it was a Donahue because I was born in 73. So back then, talk shows, you had like Donahue and Maury Povich beginning early stages and some others. I remember them showing the Zabgruda film, but I was too young to, to realize, you know, that it was fake at the time or anything like that. But I don't remember seeing like the microphone. But going back to like that, that, that oh, day, um, when I watch your video and I see the Zabgruda film, I didn't notice the problem with the crowds when he first gets off the plane 
Can you get into that? The crowds when he first gets off the plane versus the crowds at the event when the event went down? Yeah. So the major event of the day is, of course, the, the parade through Dealey Plaza, downtown uh, Dallas, 1230 lunchtime. Uh, should be thousands of people that go out on a sunny day and see the president, his rock star, beautiful wife and all of that. So he lands at uh, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth Airport. And there's gigantic crowds. It looks like the Beatles at Shea Stadium. There's thousands of people cheering and screaming. Uh, he gets the... Uh, crosses uh, uh, the, the place to get from Fort Worth to Dallas. He gets to Dallas. Again, thousands and thousands of screaming, screaming fans. And then, according to the Zabruder film that we have anyway, as soon as he gets to Dealey Plaza, the crowds just dissipate. Um, if you do a head count, there's about 150 people in Dealey Plaza, which is lunchtime at downtown, um, should have been thousands of people there, but there isn't. There's about, and if you look at the way they're spaced, they're spaced shoulder to shoulder with no one behind them. So it looks like there's a lot more people. That's how you do it in movies when you don't have enough extras. You put them shoulder to shoulder and make it look like there's a lot more there than there really is. So you look how they're spaced and you can see they're spaced to look like there's a lot more people there than there are. But as soon as the splice occurs, when the car goes behind the freeway sign, then the crowd dissipates to almost nothing. Uh, as he goes into Dealey Plaza, you see maybe 10 to 12 people total right. in the park behind him. And that's it. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why would there be more people here downtown at lunchtime than there would be at the airport, which you had to travel to and all of that. And then, of course, we asked the major question, which nobody has ever asked, which is why didn't the ABC, CBS and NBC affiliates in Dallas go to Dealey Plaza with a 16 millimeter Bolex camera? You can put it on your shoulder and shoot all you want and film the rock star president and his wife. We would have had three more versions of the assassination than just the Bruder's film, but they decided, no, we're not going to shoot the president in Dealey Plaza today. We're just going to not send a cameraman. However, we prove in the film that actually they did send a cameraman. He just wasn't shooting the parade. He was shooting the bystanders after the assassination. So you have to ask yourself, what news organization would not send a cameraman down to get the president of the United States, whoever the president is? So it could be on their nightly news. Right. Right. Or any, anything you want to add to that? Then they could have been used for stock footage for years and years and years. They could have used they that footage for anything that they wanted to do. I mean, there could have been a cameraman posted up on the uh, above the underpass there, get them all coming down. Uh, Elm Street there, it would have been phenomenal. And uh, that's what we, that's a main concern that we propose in our film, you know, and why was there a cameraman there and why wasn't he filming the president? Why was he just shooting the, uh, the, the, the bystanders? And then why was no one reacting to the gunshots until after <laughs> everything had gone on? Like if someone's shooting a high powered rifle, one, you're going to hear it, two, you're going to react. Right. And three gunshots, you're going to be looking around and trying to figure out where the gunshots are coming from. You know? oh, and yeah. that's what Jay mentioned earlier is that Abraham Zapruder is in the pergola uh, 
uh, right there as the limousine is coming down. And the conspiracy theorists say that the shooter was behind the fence that's behind the pergola. Well, if the shooter is behind the fence that's behind the pergola and he's shooting these shots, that means they're going right over top or right beside Abraham Zabruder's head. If there's shots that's whizzing by your head, you're going to be reacting to shots. Right. You're going to be turning around. The camera's going to be shaky. But no, the Zabruder film is smooth through the entire thing till it gets uh it cuts off like right when they're getting ready to go under the underpass but there's no shakiness of the film there's no jerking nothing he's just 100 smooth so how could shots be being fired from directly behind abraham zabruder and he not drop the camera not run not turn around not move the camera in the slightest bit you know it doesn't make any sense your ears would be ringing. I mean, if you were a bystander and somebody with a gigantic gun, 30 caliber rifle shoots like 10 yards away from you, your ears are going to be ringing for like an hour um, unless you have protective covering. And so nobody complained about any of that. Nobody, no witnesses complained that they're hearing, that they, they heard a high pitched sound in their ears or anything. I mean, we, we're talking. 40 feet, 13 yards. That's how not even, a, you know, a, a, a first and 10 and a half in football. That's how far away the conspiracy theorists are saying the uh, uh, the assassin was away from Elm Street and the president. Here's another thing. If you're 15 yards away from an animal or something that you're going to shoot and you hit it here, in the side of the head with a high-powered rifle, I guarantee every, anybody out there who's ever gone hunting, has ever worked with a high-powered rifle, you know what I'm about to say is true. You hit here, I guarantee this whole part of the head, it's gone. It's gone. It's it's gone. you got this much head, and that would be it. But Kennedy's head remains intact. We see it in the Observer film. It doesn't fall away. It doesn't break away. There's nothing that's cracking up or anything. And besides, there's no blood. Where's the blood from the neck wound? The neck is where all the arteries of the body come through, right it's right through here. This is where you want to hit when you're hunting. If you can hit an animal in the neck, you know you don't have to chase it because it's going to bleed out in about 20 seconds. So, you know, he got hit in the neck. He should have been bled out within a minute. He would have been dead before the car ever got to Parkland Hospital, but the whole back seat would have been covered with blood. Uh, Connolly and his wife would have had blood. It would have been shooting out everywhere. I'm not exaggerating, folks. I know what a neck wound looks like. I've seen it, and it's a very, very horrifying thing to witness, yet there's no blood. Even when he supposedly grips his hand up here, you don't see any blood coming out between the hands or anything. You don't see a wound for sure. Because he pulls his hand away, and for two seconds, the camera stays on him, and you don't see anything here at all, no blood coming down or anything. How can that be? The Universal Dialect Show will return. But first, a word from our sponsor. In a world where style knows no boundaries, where self-expression reigns supreme, there is Arise Creations. 
Introducing Arise Creations, the ultimate destination for fashion-forward individuals seeking affordable, unisex apparel that caters to every unique style. Arise Creations brings you an exceptional collection of unisex fashion essentials. From trendy tops that blend style and comfort, to versatile bottoms and footwear that add an extra layer of sophistication. We've got you covered from head to toe. Arise Creations is more than just a clothing line. We strive to create an inclusive space where everyone can find fashionable and affordable pieces that reflect their unique personality. With indelible designs, we ensure that anyone can confidently wear our products, breaking down barriers while embracing individuality. But that's not all. Arise Creations is proud to be affiliated with the Universal Dialect Show, a groundbreaking podcast that explores the worlds of music, the paranormal, art, fashion, and beyond. Join the conversation on YouTube, BitChute, Spotify, App Podcast, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Arise Creations is committed to making fashion accessible to all. We believe that style should know no bounds and everyone deserves to feel confident and empowered in what they wear. With our affordable prices and diverse product range, we're here to help you unleash your true self. Come and unleash your style and embrace your individuality. Arise Creations, where fashion meets affordability and self-expression. Please visit our website today to explore our collection and be a part of the fashion revolution. Arise Creations and the Universal Dialect Show, empowering you to create your own destiny. Head to www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Arise Creations. 73. Again, that's www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Arise Creations. So that's A-R-I-S-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S, the number seven and the number three, and bring your look to new heights. Incredible. Listen, I've I've seen a few documentaries about JFK and like specials about it. And like I said, I saw the Zabruder film, the Zabruder film, like when I was younger and, and you know, in other documentaries and whatnot. But nobody ever talks about the motorcade and that setup. You guys illustrate that perfectly, how it was odd and very off. Can you get into that? Yeah, the uh, Secret Service was called off from the motorcade. We showed that um, a couple of times in the film. You show the to... one guy like waving his hand, like yeah. like they called him off, and he's like, "What the what the hell was that? What was going on? That video?" Yeah, that was the video. It's also in the the trailer for the uh, the movie as well, and that's very suspicious uh, too. You know, like. Why would they call the Secret Service back? Because when you're in a presidential motorcade, which I don't think that anybody has ever, has anyone ever been in a presidential motorcade after JFK going through the public like that? I think that's a really good question. The question really is, was there presidential motorcades before this motorcade? Mm. I know there was in Miami 
about a month earlier. But I have to tell you, I don't remember Eisenhower in motorcades. I don't remember any other presidents in open-air motorcades before. I certainly don't remember any open-air motorcades since the assassination of JFK. I don't remember Reagan or Bush or Clinton or any of those guys, you know, waving from a car um, in an open-air motorcade. So I think that the whole idea of an open-air motorcade may be an anomaly. I think so, too. And another interesting thing is uh, Jay got the print of uh, Time Life magazine as we were making the film. And we're looking through this magazine and we're like, this isn't the same limousine. This isn't the same vehicle that that's in the Zabruder film. Oh, shit. It's not. No, and, and the, the limousine that's at the museum in in uh, in Michigan, which is supposedly the uh, the limousine, it's a four seater limousine at the museum. Well, the, uh, the limousine is clearly a six seater. So um, there's something really funny going on now. I heard early on that Johnson ordered the limousine to be completely dismantled just a few weeks after the assassination, which I think is actually true. And I think they substituted another limousine, you know, to cover everything up. And um, and since Johnson was the main beneficiary of the assassination, of course, it was in his interest to hide everything and to make sure nothing got discovered. And uh, so that's his role in all of this. Right. What's the deal, no pun intended, with Dealey Plaza? Because I'm ex-military. And to me, that's an if you're going to ambush somebody, that's a dream. Or an assassin, that's a dream to like, why would they pick that route? Can you talk about like Dealey Plaza? Yeah, they wouldn't. It, you would never pick a route where you have to take a hard left turn to enter. So you have to slow down to like four miles an hour to take the turn. Uh, uh, you know, why nobody took a pot shot then? I mean, I mean, I don't know. But uh, you'd never put a, a place where you can triangulate anyone who's ever, you know, done hunting knows. I mean, this is the perfect triangulation. You got the Dal Tex building, you got the book depository building, and you got the grassy knoll. You can hit it from all sides without the bullets hitting the people that are shooting, which is how you triangulate a shoot. So it was clearly chosen for its um, geography and its ability to be a perfect place that you would pick to triangulate a shoot. Again, no Secret Service would ever send a guy in an open air limousine through such an area. Period. Right. Right. So so in the documentary, after the event happens, there's an assumption, not by you guys, but by the information that you got, that Kennedy was still alive because they went to rush him to the hospital to perform sort of like surgery to keep him alive. So was it there, so there was an assumption that he was still alive after he had gotten shot? Uh, yeah, it would seem hard to believe that you could get a shot in the head, right? But <laughs> caliber and expect someone to live. But I mean, they really had no choice. You do you have to take a, cover all your bases, and so they took the eight minute run from Dealey Plaza to Parkland Hospital, and uh, anything could have happened in that eight minutes. Right. So then we get introduced to Parkland Hospital, but before that. We get introduced to the Italian Carcano rifle. I think it's an M91, the magic bullet. And then it's the first mention of Jack Ruby. Can you talk about all those three that kind of come together at the Parkland Hospital? Well, people said they saw Jack Ruby there um, and he may have been there. But if uh, what's his name is actually saying that he put the magic bullet on the on the on the cot, then maybe Ruby didn't have to be there. 
but Ruby was there anyway because he was part of the whole plot. He was a Chicago mob. Uh, he was also CIA. Um, he was all part of the entire theater theater of the entire uh, uh, drama. And so, yeah, he was there. Parkland Hospital, of course, is where the famous photographer took a picture of the back seat of the limousine where Kennedy was assassinated. And there's about uh, three tablespoons of blood, maybe, on the thing, mixed up with uh, Jackie's roses. So you're not even sure how much you're seeing. But there's no way that a guy could get hit in the neck and the head and only have that much blood. So I don't think that was Kennedy's blood at all. I think it was probably Tippett's blood. But you'll have to wait for the movie to understand why I'm saying that. Right. Anything to add, Ryder? No, I think the, that really covers it. I mean, we covered this in the uh, documentary about, you know, Jack Ruby. And another interesting thing about Jack Ruby is I personally believe this isn't in the movie, but I personally believe that Jack Ruby was then visited by Sidney Gottlieb, which was head of the MK Ultra programs that dosed him while he was in jail after he shot and killed Oswald. Because mm. after that, he was like, talking out of his mind he was like the goblins the fairies made me do it the fairies did it and like all this wild stuff but we also show in the documentary as well that ruby is uh he's given this uh he's in, in like a little interview and he's like no one will ever know about this uh i'm the only one that has this information of why this was done and then he was asked well are these people in high up positions and he's like yes you know, so that's just confirming. So they had to go in and do something to him in order to get him to shut up or make him look like that he's out of his mind or that he's crazy. And I think that that's what happened. How long was it after that he passed away from cancer? Was it six months or less, two less, years? Less than a year. Less than yeah. a year. Um, but yeah, he did. He for sure got visited by Sidney Gottlieb, um, MK Ultra uh, guy. And after that, he was a blithering idiot from that on. So they got acid or they gave him something and turned him into a, uh, a person who could no longer be cognitive. And uh, so they got away with it. All right. So then then, then he gets pronounced, JFK gets pronounced dead at the hospital. And then a battle ensues. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, well, they, uh, the Secret Service demanded that they take the body back to D.C. And the Dallas coroner who had the... Uh, a legal uh, right said, no, you can't do that. Uh, the uh, murder took place in my jurisdiction. I get to take care of this. And they actually threatened him. And uh, uh, they took the body with them and uh, yeah, and took it back to D.C. where they botched the autopsy. And um, uh, <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. they immediately swore in uh, Johnson on Air Force One, like, Almost immediately with Jackie uh, standing right beside of him. Uh, yeah, it was a really interesting thing. Like, they got that body out of there quick. And why would they do that? And another thing that's really interesting about our film that we talk about in the third act is they dug up JFK's body in the middle of the night and moved it, like, four or five feet from where it was originally dug up. Why would they do that? Why would they do it in the middle of the night? We show the photos of them actually being there like 3 a.m. digging up JFK's body. Yep. They never told anyone why they were doing it, what they were doing it for, when they were doing it. They just randomly went and dug up his body and moved it over five feet. 1967. Yep. Wow. 
Um, I'm going to ask a question I didn't write down on my notes because it just came to me. Again, I apologize. But this is stuff that I feel like people need to know. Jackie Onassis, like, who is she? And what's her past like? Because I feel like she's in the know of a lot of these things. And she's kind of forgotten in this in this story. Yeah, well, I tell you, going down the rabbit hole of this whole thing, when I started going down the rabbit hole of Jackie Kennedy, I started getting my eyes pretty wide open there. Um, Jackie is the uh, member of a very aristocratic French family, the Bouviers. Um, her sister and her were socialites. Um, <clears throat> she's a very strange person. Uh, she has a very strange mannerisms and very strange way of talking. And she's a very strange person. And um, she's uh, openly flirting with LBJ, as we show in the movie, uh, after J John is supposedly assassinated. And she went off and lived with uh, Aristotle Onassis at his island in Greece, Scorpio's island, back right after the assassination. Uh, and uh, Aristotle Onassis was, of course, Kennedy's biggest financial supporter in the 1960 election. And we believe that Kennedy actually moved to Scorpio's Island after the so-called assassination and lived there uh, happily with his children and everything uh, for the rest of his life. You'll have to watch the movie to find that one out. Correct. But yeah, Jackie is, uh, I'll, let me put it to you this way, because I want, I want to leave you with something here with Jackie. Um, Aristotle and NASA started disliking Jackie quite a bit. Uh, after they got married. And his son, Ari, uh, kept saying that she was a widow, black widow, stealing Aristotle's money. And then he died in a plane crash right after he began complaining about Jackie, mm. a very mysterious plane crash. And then Aristotle had pictures released to Life magazine of Jackie sunning on the beach on Scorpio's Island, of which you can Google these pictures. And I, I ask you uh, all to Google these pictures of Jackie in her bathing suit uh, on the island of Scorpios uh, after the Kennedy assassination and ask yourself, um, uh, you know, does that look like a woman? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, another thing that was not well known about JFK was he was suffering from Addison's disease, which for those that don't know, it's a autoimmune disorder that causes constant pain. And uh, a lot of times JFK had to wear a, a back and neck brace and a lot of the time, mostly in private, but there's a few pictures of him that we show in our documentary of him in public on crutches and wearing a back brace. So then we also get into Another weird assassination that is very little well-known, which was in 1964, uh, just 11 months after JFK's assassination and Mary Pinchot Meyer. She was murdered on the uh, DC towpath as well. Really strange and weird circumstances surrounding her death. There was no blood. She was apparently shot uh, several times. No blood at the scene. And uh, she was also married to the head of the CIA at the time. So. And she was a lover of JFK. Yes. Mm. Love interest, huh? Yep. <laughs> she was cute, oh, too. Was she? <laughs> so listen, so so the next part that, that got my attention was, obviously, you introduce 
after the the event, the Zabgruda film that Life had had for a while. This is before uh, Geraldo, who we'll talk about a little bit, released it on his show. But who was Abraham Zabgruder, and did he have any ties to like the government or the mob? Yeah, he was a tailor at a shop in the Daltex building. And he was a big fan of the Kennedys and a, a home movie aficionado and uh, also a 33rd degree Mason and um, uh, head of the Mason uh, 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 in Dallas. And uh, um, uh, he was part of it for sure. Uh, he, he picked the most opportune place to uh, put the camera. And uh, I believe that he was part of the whole uh, whole deal um, to uh document the event in a way that would be done in a way that they could cover it up so kennedy goes behind the the stemmons freeway sign in which some kind of monkey business happens we're missing four frames of footage at that point and then he comes out and he's clearly got something on the side of his face at that stage and uh we can you know watch the film and see what else happens but yeah as a brooder had to have been part of the whole whole thing uh, the fact that you know it was shot he was shot at the triple underpass dallas is at 33 degree latitude um the freemasonry building that Zabruder was part of is like two blocks away um yeah the whole thing just stinks of a of a freemasonic ritual of some kind mm. so so the apb that was put out was that put out when jfk was pronounced dead or was it right after they drove him off like when did that apb come out and what was the apb before he got to the hospital the apb was out it identified oswald described him perfectly said he was carrying the italian carcano rifle which he wasn't he had buried that in a box in the sixth floor depository um but they got that wrong but they got it right because they had the rifle right and um and this is supposedly the bulletin that uh jd tippett heard and that alerted him to the suspicious activity of oswald as he was walking down the street without a rifle right right so they they put out an apb they have a description exactly like oswald and when did tippett get killed well they say that he got killed about 45 minutes after the assassination but we contend that, and I've gone through the timeline, I believe that he was killed around 12.15, about 15 minutes before the assassination, and he was picked up somewhere on that route uh, between Fort Worth and uh, the Dealey Plaza and put in the trunk. <laughs> so, Ryder, who who was J.D. Tippett? Can you go into, like, who he was? Yeah, he was a Dallas police officer that was supposedly shot by um, Lee Harvey Oswald. His nickname on the Dallas police force was JFK because the striking resemblance between him and JFK, they were literally a dead ringer for each other. We actually have a photo in the documentary that has them split face side by side. And you really can't tell who is who in that photo. You yeah, know, it's they, crazy. They look <laughs> they look almost identical. So it's just a coincidence, right? That supposedly JD Tippett was shot in the back, shot in the back of the head as well. And also JFK was supposedly shot in those exact same areas. Right. Yeah. I want, I want to say something about that too, because um, 
the the story is, is that JFK got shot here in the back of the head, right? And J.D. Tippett supposedly also got shot here in the back of the head. And the autopsy shows a hit in the back of the head, not a hit here like the Zapruder film. And um, and um, I think, it, you know, it has to be said that uh, this is a major discrepancy in the whole thing. And no one ever brings it up. And so what happened, I believe, is that J.D. Tippett was shot in the back of the head. And then Kennedy, um, probably in a rehearsal, tried to put the squib on the back of his head, not realizing that this hair stops the stickum from holding. And so it kept sliding off. And he elected finally to just stick it here because at least it could stick to the skin because the sticking won't stick to hair. I know that because I've worked with squibs before. So I think that Kennedy did a compromise with it so that it would at least have it on film and make it look good. Then they decided to hide the film forever, not knowing that eventually it would all be released and that eventually there would be software that would enhance that film and allow us to see what it really looked like. I know that because of time you weren't allowed, you didn't have time to put so much footage in there, but you guys didn't t touch on um, Tippett's body. I know there were witnesses to him getting shot, but what happened to his body? Was it ever autopsied or, or anything like that? Yeah, we say in the film, I think we did, that he did get an autopsy. There were no photographs taken of the autopsy, only sketches. Same with Oswald. Uh, very unusual. He's supposed to take photographs, but they didn't. They used sketches. Both autopsies had sketches. Um, not allowed, not not legal. Um, yet they did it. And, uh, you know, and I think that that is a closed casket. So no one ever saw Tippett again. No one ever saw JFK again either. He had a closed casket, as did Oswald. So all three people that were killed in around that time period all had closed caskets. Two of them had just sketches on their autopsies. Uh, Kennedy had photographs, but the photographs are incongruent with the events in the Zapruder film. So all we have is just more and more mystery. Right. Anything to add, Ryder? No, I think that really covers it. The discrepancies between the uh, Zabruder film and the autopsy photos and the why would they not take photographs of J.D. Tippett? Why would they not take photographs of Oswald? They were just weird sketches. I mean, that's suspicious. You're always supposed to take photographs of um, autopsies. They're always supposed to be there. And it's just, uh, you know, there's so many, there's too many coincidences like what Jay was talking about, you know, things just don't add up. And that's what has led to so much nonsense surrounding the JFK assassination. That's what's led because we haven't had the answers that all this speculation just continuously runs through it and everyone's wrong. No one's right about it. You know, because it's just more nonsense that just gets seems like it just gets compounded every single year. And back to your question, probably like 30, 40 minutes ago, where you were talking about, well, what was the reason why, you know, I wanted me and Jay wanted to make this film. And that was a big reason why I wanted to make the film, because this is the original conspiracy theory. All other conspiracy theories, it's like the inception of conspiracy theories in the community. You know, and that's what really intrigued me is like, can we go back? Can we figure this out? Can we um, accurately depict 
of what we believe actually happened. And it's uh, blown everybody out of the water. There's been so much mis and disinformation after our film. People are really shocked that actually sit down and watch it all the way through. They come out with a new outlook on what happened. And uh, they, I don't even, a lot of people, see the conspiracy theorists don't like it. They really don't because it destroys their entire narrative and what they have worked toward researching some people for their entire lives. You know, so it completely wrecks and ruins uh, all of their theories that they've ever done. But the people that really do like it are normal, everyday people because it solves it. I mean, it's in the title of the movie, JFKX, Solving the Crime of the Century. You know, we feel like that we legitimately solved the uh, the assassination and that doesn't sit well with people and it's a healing film because no matter which way you look at it, it's a very traumatic event and we've had several traumatic events even before jfk like uh pearl harbor like uh the titanic which that's a whole other uh big story the titanic there but uh and then we have the the ones after that you know we have 9-11 we have 2020 so it's like it's another one of those big traumatizing events and no one has ever been able to figure it out. And I think that we've gotten smarter after each one of these events happened. We're quicker to the jump to expose it. But this one went so long without anybody ever figuring out because it was all theories and speculation. 9-11 was, people were on that one a little bit more. It was around seven, five to seven years after 9-11, people were like, huh. What's going on here? This doesn't seem right, you know? And with 2020, everyone was on it like that quick, you know? So I think that the more that we expose this kind of stuff, the the, the quicker and the better that we get in the community and uh, the better credibility that we uh, create. Mm. So let's get into like Lee Harvey Oswald, because to me, he's the second like main character of this like documentary but people don't know his his history or his past. So uh, can you guys get into that, his connection to the incident? Obviously, the one that assassinated JFK, but what was his past like leading up to this? He was uh, um, probably um, uh, off of Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, he uh, learned Russian as a Marine, and um, he... Uh, uh, renounced America and went and moved to the Soviet Union, which was unheard of at the time, married a Russian woman, and then came back inexplicably and got away with it. No one questioned him for uh, renouncing his uh, citizenship and coming back. And um, uh, for a far left-wing communist sympathizer, he began hanging out with far right-wing Russians in uh, New Orleans and Dallas, and uh, these people were obviously his handlers, and he was part of a um, of a, of a, a intelligence community. He was part of it, and he um, was involved in the Kennedy assassination. Um, I'm sure he knew exactly what was going on the entire time. And uh, I, I, the reason I think that is because when he's questioned at the Dallas police headquarters that night after the assassination, he uses the word which is a very odd word to use. He calls himself a, um, a patsy. And a patsy mm. is a very specific word. It's not a general term at all. It's a person who's being held for a crime that they did not commit. And he calls himself a patsy. And I believe he chose that word very carefully. 
his fingerprints are not on the rifle. They had to go back and re-fingerprint the corpse to put fingerprints on the rifle. So he had no fingerprints on the rifle. He did not have a paraffin any uh, gunpowder on the paraffin test. He did not fire a rifle that day. Lee Harvey Oswald was 100% completely innocent of anything that happened that day. Ryder, you got anything? Absolutely agree. 100%. <laughs> we show it all in the... Uh, in the movie, the paraffin test was the most uh, shocking thing because, you know, people always say, oh, well, Oswald didn't have anything to do with it. He was just a passive. Well, that, that proves that he really didn't do anything. And uh, the Dallas police force knew that he didn't fire a rifle that day, but they still pinned these charges on him anyway, and it was mostly the public. Right. And that's because LBJ was in control. He was both in control of everything on, in Texas because he was the big time senator from Texas. And the reason that he took the um, oath of office while he was still in Texas is because from that moment on, he would own everything in Washington. So there was one guy who owned everything on the ground in Texas and everything on the ground in Washington. And that somebody was LBJ. Mm. So, so the war... Go ahead. So your thoughts on like the Warren Commission and its findings, what were your thoughts on that after... You know, uh, all this went down. A bunch of naive fools that looked at evidence that wasn't real and reached conclusions that was errant. I don't think that they did it on purpose. I think that um, the evidence that they were shown was faulty. Um, we know it was. They didn't know there were splices in the film and all of that. So um, I, I, they did a terrible job investigating. So I don't think that they deserve any kudos, but... You know, they probably really were just being led by the nose by whoever, probably Johnson. And um, because Johnson wanted to retain the presidency he wanted so badly. Right. I don't even think that they even seen the Zabruder film. Um, I, I think that they were just going off of uh, the autopsy photos because that, that's the only thing that makes sense with their conclusion on what happened that day. I don't even think that they even saw the Zabruder film. Maybe some age did, but I don't think anybody on the Warren Commission even saw it. Yeah. Right. So moving along, right? The Zabruder film, life has that. And somehow Geraldo gets a hold of it. How does that happen? Like, wh who is Geraldo? Because I've heard rumors, you know, throughout the years that Geraldo is a, a rat. <laughs> you know, like he's a he's not a good person. Um, and, but how does he get the privilege to play this 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 film? Uh, he's he's probably CIA uh, limited hangout is what they were doing. So they there was so much talk about the Zabruder film by this time, eleven years after the assassination, that they felt they had to show it. So they got a really grainy, fuzzy version of it that you really couldn't see what was going on, and they showed it, and it was shocking and everything. But as far as detail, you really couldn't see what was going on. I remember very well watching it. And yeah, Geraldo's always been a, a you know, an uneasy character. You know, his real name isn't even Geraldo; it's Jerry. Right. His last right. name is Rivers, and you know, he, <laughs> he, he he Latinized the whole name just so he's yeah, yeah, in the, in the media business. But um, uh, he's actually Jewish. Be be honest with you. Right. And um, so yeah, he he showed it. Limited hangouts, what they do. Uh, we didn't see it again. That was 1974. We didn't see it again until 1991. 
in JFK by Oliver Stone. And even he, as, as writer knows, even he messed with the film. Sorry, but he did. He cut out all the good stuff. Sorry. Ryder, can you talk about that? Yeah, he just cut out the most important part of the Zabruder film as the limousine is going behind the Stimmons freeway sign. It's just like when uh, our our belief of what happened that day uh, six years ago, um, that's the most important part of because JFK is doing something there. And they don't want to show JFK doing that thing that we're showing him doing in our film. So they have to cut that out. And uh, like JS mentioned several times, I, he uh, believes that Oliver Stone got the high definition version of the Zabruder film and was like, holy shit, what's going on here? I know what's happening. But his entire production has, has already gone through. He's already gotten all the money to make this film and he's already uh, cultivated his theory of everything that was happening. So he just had to keep going along with that, even though that he saw what we show in our film, there was nothing that he could do about it. Exactly. And maybe someday we'll, we'll do this, uh, writer. But if you watch JFK, the, the part with the Zabruder film, it's carefully cut out. The whole two seconds where this thing is on his face, it's completely cut out of the film. He does not want you to see it. He makes films. He knows what that is. Okay. He's used the, that device many, many times. He saw it. He went, oh, my God, I'm completely wrong. I just got a $40 million commitment to make this film. What am I going to do? I'm going to make the film as I wrote it. And you can't blame me. Can you guys go, go into uh, what a squib is for those who don't know what a squib is? Yeah, a squib is a Hollywood device that uh, basically it has a metal plate on the bottom. And then it has a little pile of gunpowder and a triggering device, which is a spark light the gunpowder then over the top is your fake blood and we used to throw like bits of styrofoam in there to make it look like bone and stuff was flying out and then the whole thing is covered with a prophylactic that's usually flesh colored depending on you know what race your person is and then you put them on you know underneath the shirt or on your skin and there's a little string in those days it was a string that you got pulled which ignite the trigger and make the thing explode and the actor would you know react right. like being shot and um, they were very effective, not used very much in Hollywood until after the Kennedy assassination, when really the boomers took over Hollywood and decided that they were going to show violence as it really was and not the antiseptic violence that our parents showed us, where, you know, you got shot in the head and a little penny size of blood would come out. You know, I don't think so, folks. And um, so the squib was not used very much when Kennedy uh, was assassinated. But about 10 years later, it started being used a lot. And uh, now today it's ubiquitous in almost all uh, film productions. They use squibs everywhere if there's violence in the film. They're very effective. They look good. But to be honest with you, again, if you know guns and you know how bullets hit things, and they don't look right. I mean, when you if you get a shot in the head right here, your head's not going to explode out like this. It's going to go in. There's going to be a little trickle of blood. This side, though, is going to go blam. And it's all going to be torn out and everything. So, you know, the squibs really don't show gunshots as they really are. They're just sensationalism. And, um, you know, as a hunter, I can tell you that I wish 
that my gunshots were as you know dynamic and explosive as they are in Hollywood, but they're they're not. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino is really famous for using squibs in almost all of his movies. Yep. Yeah, you have. So if you people want to know that. what a squib is, uh, watch a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Watch <laughs> the Django <laughs> Unchained, which is one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies. Yeah, uh, about in that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You all showed the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah, you showed the squibs throughout the throughout the throughout the documentary. But I, I fired a weapon for the first time when I joined the military, and they, you know, when they train you, they tell you you have to hold it a certain way because then you get that pullback. And it would cause like, you know, uh, bruises sometimes on your shoulder, depending on. So is the squib similar where it gives you kind of like a jolt back when you use it? Nope. Nope. There's very little gunpowder. It's just all effect. The actor has to do the movement okay. themselves. Um, probably I'm probably in the, the, the Godfather, James Kahn at the toll bridge. He gets out of the car and then he has about 30 squibs go off. I don't know if you guys remember that scene. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's reacting like that. You know, and uh, he, apparently uh, he had to go to the hospital after that scene because the squibs had left so many bruises on his body that he had to actually go to the hospital. So they do leave a little bit of an effect, you know, a little bruise. Because, I mean, in an explosion, even with the metal plate protecting you, it's going to have an impact. It's going to push down into the right. muscles and, and cause bruising and that kind of thing. So actors do get bruised by him, but nothing like a gunshot. Right. We, the reason why I ask is because that, that scene where he, that final kill shot, so to speak, if he didn't die, I, I'm, it looks like he got at least knocked out or some sort of concussion from the blowback from it. It does. It just seems like that. Um, yeah, well, if you, if you look, uh, sorry, Jay, uh, if you look, his head doesn't start moving until after the explosion happens, which really confirms uh, what we believe is going on here. Like, you can't stop a fast, high-powered rifle bullet. Like, you're going to immediately go as soon as it hits you. His head doesn't start moving, so it's like, if it was... It is the squib. I mean, there's something on the side of JFK's face. No one can debate that there's nothing on the side of JFK's face. It's, yeah, you it's see deformed. like a, you can see a shadow. Yeah, like some sort of shadow formation. And, and we show in the film that that it's glistening off of the sunlight. It's yeah, rolling off the side of his face. It's, there's uh, things that are shooting off the side of his face. It's like everything that points to a squib. Right. It's a squib. And, you know, it's, uh, um, and uh, that can't be denied. And what's going to happen here, and it's going to happen probably sooner than later, is that somebody, maybe even Quentin, is going to see our film, uh, someone who's uh, well versed in squibs and squib technology, and they're going to go, that's a squib. I'm sorry, that's a squib. And then that's going to be it. That's going to, nobody's going to argue anymore. So I'm just actually waiting for that to happen. So, so as we wrap it up, just a couple more questions. One, I wanted you guys to talk about Gary Mack, who he is, and his findings, and what you think about those findings. Yeah, Gary Gary Mack's a really interesting guy. He's now dead. Um, he um, was the guy that found the uh, um, the photograph of the uh, supposedly the police officer shooting gun at the grassy knoll. But he realized later that there wasn't enough information in the Polaroid for that conclusion to be reached. 
And like any good researcher, he backtracked and said, no, I'm not right about this. That cannot be. First off, it was a black and white Polaroid, and he colorized it. So, I mean, he's cheating from the beginning. He knew that. He doesn't know what colors he's dealing with. So um, Gary Mack did something that was interesting at the beginning of the Kennedy assassination research. He realized that it caused a lot of people to go off in wrong directions. He pulled back and said, no, he was wrong. He deserves credit for that. I myself have been wrong in my research and I pulled back from it. That's what you do as a good researcher. You don't double down. You don't stand on it. When you know you're wrong, you say you're wrong. And so Gary Mack was actually a great researcher. And I think he saw it because he worked at the sixth floor depository museum where they showed the Zabruder film all over, over and over all day long. And I think eventually somebody came in and said, you know, that thing on the side of his face there, that's pretty suspicious. And he saw it. I, I, I wanted to talk to Gary Mack. Unfortunately, he died before I got a chance. Anything writer? Yeah, it's just interesting that uh, Gary Mack went back on, uh, kind of turned his back on the conspiracy community because uh, he realized that it was completely off base and people were coming out with all these wild and fantastical theories surrounding the photo and he pulled back from it. And that's a very honorable uh, position to take, you know, because so many people are not like that. They like to just uh, compound upon the thing, even though it's uh, falsely made, just like uh, Ashton Forbes in his, uh, I don't know if you guys know about this, but Ashton Forbes just came out and said that all the MH17 uh, video was completely fake. And, but he's saying now, you know what I'm talking about? The UFOs that are surrounding yes. the plane that throws it through a portal. He just came out because someone released a, uh, a, uh, a stock photo of the clouds and everything that's directly that's identical to the actual plane and the the footage and he put out a tweet and he was like yeah this is empirical evidence that uh that it's faked but then he also says in the exact same tweet that he's going to continue to do podcasts and shows on it so on one hand he's saying all oh, it's fake it's uh, people were right saying this entire time that it's not real but he's going to continue acting like that it is real for the shows and the people that he goes on uh, that's requested him to come on their show to talk about it. So it's an interesting uh, concept with Gary Mack, how he was like, no, nah, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm just taking a step back from this right. and uh, you're not going to do it. That's an honorable thing to do. Right. So in your opinions or not in your opinions, but how many people actually died that day? Only one. Only one. J.D. Tippett. Tippett died that day, and only one person died that day. And I'm sorry to Tippett's family that it happened to him. And he was an innocent victim. And um, wow, what a bummer. Right. So um, this event, along with many other events that happened in America, really kind of like put, you know, it puts people in a, in a perspective like, man, the world is like going to shit. But how bad did this event like hurt the American people? A lot. It, it put a wound in us that we've never recovered. And the thing is, is that um, we're offering a way that heals us from this traumatic experience. And instead of embracing that, you know, the intelligence community and all the rest are just 
like, you know, raking us through the mud. And um, they should be happy. I mean, the CIA is completely exonerated, according to our film. But they don't want to have that exoneration for some reason. So it tells me that the deep state is much more interested in uh, fomenting false theatrical outcomes to create trauma than they are in helping us cope with reality in any kind of healthy way. What do you say to that, writer? I agree with that uh, 100%. I think that it was a very traumatic event and it really changed America forever uh, for the worse. And I think that our film heals that trauma and that people should watch it and people should support us. We don't have a, uh, a big production company b behind our film. We don't have people pushing this out for us besides the shows that we've been on. Uh, that's our promotion and uh, we're independent filmmakers and we would really appreciate it if you would check out our film. If you're in the United States on Amazon Prime, JFKX Solving the Crime of the Century would mean a lot to us to, uh, you know, not only get new information and solve the crime of the century that people have been talking about for 60 years now, but also help uh, support our work so that we can continue to make uh, very intriguing, good films, because this is the first of three. We got two more uh, in the chamber that is also going to be equally as mind blowing. So. All right, fellas. So uh, are you both working on anything new together? Um, what's yeah, the next working on a new film, a documentary, which is ostensibly the history of MK Ultra, but we're going to look at it through the optics of pop culture. So it's going to be a different take. It's not going to be a boring documentary about people, mind-controlling people, but a more of a pop culture view of how famous filmmakers are telling us about MK Ultra and mind control and how they are probably involved in it. What, what do you what do you have? Uh, where can people find you, Jay? Uh, jwidener.com. I have a show on YouTube called Reality Check. Just type in Reality Check Jay Widener, and you can find I got like 240 shows up right now. Um, YouTube hates me, but that's okay. <laughs> they, hate, they hate everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not alone, Jay. Writer, uh, you're the man, dude. Um, I know you, you're, you're thinking about possibly changing things up, but what, what are you working on next? What's your next venture, my man? Uh, just going to continue doing what I'm doing and try and find some new avenues and some new things. And I'm going to be working on this new documentary with Jay uh, Widener here uh, beginning of the year. So be on the lookout for that and support our film. Check it out on Amazon Prime. And if you want to check out more about, uh, about me, uh, Raised by Giants on YouTube, Raised by Giants on Instagram, Twitter, uh, well, X now. Sorry, I got Quit calling it Twitter. It's, it's Twitter, damn it. <laughs> it's weird because right after we dropped this documentary is when Elon Musk changed Twitter to X. And I was like messaging Jay. I'm like, everything's X now. <laughs> yeah. You know, with this documentary, it was really strange. But uh, yeah, X, uh, Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and any and all podcast platforms. And thanks so much for having us on, brother. I really appreciate your time this evening. Yeah, dude, you guys were awesome. Um, This is easily one of my best interviews that I've done in so I want to I want to just let you guys know I appreciate it. Don't go anywhere. I'm just going to end it and then we could just talk for a little bit and I'll let you guys, you know, handle your business, okay? But thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. See ya.